You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. And even if we want to know more about someone who we work with who comes from a very different background, we're so it can be so daunting to know how to ask a question without being insulting. And so we don't necessarily ask. I hear a lot of people talk about that. I want to know more. I just don't know how to ask. I don't know how to start that conversation. And I'm afraid I'll offend them. That was Leah Weiss, a business consultant and author who helps people integrate mindfulness and productivity. In today's wide-ranging episode, we discuss how the topic of mindfulness may be unintentionally excluding people from different religious faiths, and how people and organizations can make room for an inclusive conversation about introspective practices that respects everyone's beliefs. We also discuss the traps of creating, quote, universal, end quote, solutions that stamp out individuality and other cultures. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. I'm delighted to talk to Leah today because we were talking a little bit about our shared body of work, and we do a lot with mindfulness. Um, I think we both use strategic mindfulness, that concept, maybe the same way, but maybe in different ways. And what was really exciting was to hear that she had been exploring a challenge in the work. We use mindfulness in a certain way, and I think we mean for it to be a agnostic sort of an inclusive way to pull people into a practice of meditation and thoughtfulness. But it's also true that mindfulness in some communities can actually be exclusive. Um, And so we wanted to talk about our thoughts and what we've seen with that. And Leah, thanks so much for showing up, the great work you do, and for entertaining this conversation with me. Charlie, thank you so much for having me. I've already enjoyed the pre-conversation so much. It's, it's just a fantastic opportunity to bring these com- concepts we both care a lot about. And um, I'm so interested and inspired by your life story. So thanks. Like to talk. Alrighty. So I think you're the one that has had the most recent catalytic, catalytic moment that's made you think about this. So, so sort of share where, where it came up and the tensions that you felt. And we'll dive in from there. Yeah, so I um, am working on an academic case right now um, at the Stanford Business School where I teach, and it's a case about um, that's used in the classroom. We'll put it in our database at Stanford, and it'll go in the Harvard one so that people who teach at business schools or other educators around the world can use it. And I had in my mind that what I wanted to do was look at um, the question what are companies who are bringing in mindfulness programs, what are the different metrics they're looking for? How are they finding them received? But also the unintended consequences or challenges. So today I had an interview with um, the person leading an initiative at a major tech company. Um, And one of the things that he talked about um, was having had a recent retreat um, during company time And um, that he felt that, um, you know, the individuals who are coming to spend the time in this mindfulness retreat were then coming back to enrich their teams. I said, that sounds wonderful. Um, 
But something about, and he also had made a comment earlier in our conversation that that businesses, he believes, are becoming, in the process of becoming the new church. And the new place where communities of conversation about values happen, which to me was both exciting, but coupled with this conversation about the retreat, I it made me think of people that I've worked with who come from other religious backgrounds that either are coming to mindfulness as devout Muslims, Jews, Christians, Hindus, um, or secular sort of humanists. And, you know, I, I always try to think about this question of, well, what about what, why is it okay? Or what, makes it okay for us to send during work hours people to go do a retreat on mindfulness? Would we allow them to spend the same time on work hours to go to a retreat from their religion of origin? And, and just there's important questions to keep asking there. So that was, you know, one of the things that, um, and I think in the corporate settings, we haven't had as much sort of dialogue around this issue. In education settings, there's been lawsuits, right? Places where yoga or mindfulness are brought into schools and parents say no, and that it's inconsistent with for them with their um, determination of the beliefs they want to raise their children with. But I don't think we've had that conversation fully. So yeah, what I, I'd love to explore that with you more fully and, and hear your thinking too. Yeah, I think it's, let's put it this way. There are, in 2017, there are a lot of conversations being had right now about things that we can talk about, things that we should talk about, and things that aren't being talked about, but maybe we should talk about, right? And I think this goes into, um, in our American context, this goes to this interplay we have between the major dominant culture um, and its values versus alternative values, right? Alternative um, communities and things like that. And so to not dance around it as much, like I, I can say that I know that I have been places to where um, it has been communally uncomfortable to, you know, to use Christian language like God and prayer and, and things like that, right? Whereas in that same context, it would have been completely cool to use meditation and mindfulness and spirit and talking about chakras and all sorts of things. Right. Um, and it's this really interesting thing because, um, I grew up in the South. I grew up as a Methodist. Right. Um, and so I was very much entrenched in that. And so I still hear it, right. I still hear it. Um, and you know, I've done my own work to sort of translate and adapt and sort of come back to the tradition in a different way. Right. Um, but quite frankly, I my my thing has been I think the ways in which sometimes we talk about meditation and mindfulness and um, introspection and all these types of things can in fact be very um, exclusive to Christians, or in the sense that it might be um, that they um, that there's not a good entry point for them. Now I'm not going to go all Bill O'Reilly and be like this is a war against Christians and things like that because that's not actually what I think is what's going on. I think. In some ways, it's making rooms for different ways of being, and to do that, sometimes you have to push out other ways of being that are the accepted norm, but at the same time, that's the conversation we're not having. How do we have, how can we say, you know what, at lunch from 11 to 1, you can do yoga and meditation, 
right? And that's completely fine, but we don't say, or you can also go to mass, right? During that time. Um, or you can also go to confession or you can also, um, go do, um, your noontime prayers or anything like that. Right. Um, and it's a sticky point because, um, I understand why corporations and we all are uncomfortable to talk about it. Um, but I think it's important that we do because there's different ways into mindfulness. There's different ways into meditate, into prayer. And from my perspective, they're different words for the same thing. Um, but what do we do? How do we have that conversation? Um, and, um, so obviously, you know, we're both consultants. We both, you know, talk to people about these types of things. And so, um, I'm curious though, um, what, if I were a client and this has come up, how would you work through an organizational client to be clear? How would you work through having this conversation and setting it up so that there is this, um, open space to tap into your version of source, whatever that is. Absolutely. So I I think one of, um, the ways that it becomes really important is upfront when we are defining a space, that's a space that people, we are really clear about the goals. Like this isn't going to be, um, sneaky Buddhism. This is going to be a conversation about compassion or mindfulness or purpose. And we want to set norms for our conversation that allow people to come in from varying viewpoints, Mm -hmm. which means like they can't attack each other, but also I feel strongly we can't privilege um, that, that that needs to include religious perspectives if we're trying to have that conversation, Mm -hmm. because it would be very difficult for individuals to talk about a topic like mindfulness or compassion or purpose without bringing their beliefs in either overtly or not. Um, So then you know, I think there's making it clear up front that there's a respect for um, our ability to learn from one another's different religious pers- backgrounds and practices, and um, that we um, um, also not saying, not misdefining it that this is a secular, as in the sense of we can, o- you can't talk about your belief system. Um, I think that's a big mistake. There's different ways of understanding secular. We want it to be universally um, people can belong to the conversation and talk about who they are and where they come from. So, um, you know, I think that that, and to me, what gets concerning is if there's only an opportunity to talk about, you know, mindfulness or chakras or these yogic practices and, but other people don't feel like they can bring in their prayer life. Um, and I think the group that's most, that's taught me the most about this is working with veterans. And, you know, when I, I've spent time at the residential PTSD unit in the Bay area and in Menlo park and majority of the veterans that I worked with, um, have devout religious practices and were so passionate. So when we were doing compassion training classes, that's what came in their prayer lives. When we, there were visualizations I would invite them to bring in if there was an image from Christianity that appealed to them. 
Um, and then we would talk about all of that. So to me, I think there's just an invitation and, um, yeah. What do you think? Well, I think there, there is plenty of context to be concerned here. Now from a comparative religion perspective, the Abrahamic religions have been the most exclusivist and of the religions historically. So Abrahamic religions being ones that, you know, Christianity, um, Islam and Jew and Judaism have largely been the most, um, especially the former two have been the most where it's like you, you have this belief set or, you know, you're wrong or, you know, you can go to hell or those different types of things, especially the way that it's come through the American sort of evangelical tradition and, and, and the way we've, we've morphed that in our society. And so I think that's an important context to say, like, um, you coming in and saying, you know, um, being able to talk about God and Jesus and prayer and, you know, angels or whatever set you have there, that's completely cool. Where we might be, where we might have trouble is if you're, it gets more into, um, I'll, I'll use more Southern Baptist language here, more into hell and damnation talk, Right. That's super challenging to be in a room with people. It's like, well, I believe that if you believe that, then you're wrong and you're going to hell. You know, it's not my place to judge, but that's what I'm told. That that can be a very sort of um, challenging and exclusive conversation in that way, right? But as long as it's, um, you know, this is my belief set, that might be something that, that's out there, then it's like we can come to the table and say, my way of understanding this particular way of mindfulness meditation, presence, um, you know, um, loving kindness has gone through this channel. Your way has gone through that channel. They're compatible, right? So we're all good. We can use these words interchangeably. Um, and so um, it's kind of like, I don't know, Leah, we have a rule in our team. Um, not, a, not about religion per se, but um, I've got a military background, as you know, and I will spawn off acronyms and short ways of talking to each other, right? And things like that. And we have, um, I think we call it the language rule, right? Where it's, it's not that you have to use the language that I'm using. You just have to be able to understand the language that I'm using, right? And so if I can say, you know, SSR, Leah, you know, two to three weeks, um, O-R-A-H, and Shannon understands that, she doesn't have to say that same thing back to me, right? She can say it in whatever way is easiest for her. And I think there's a similarity here. And, and then we came up to that because people would come to our team and they're like, there's no way I'm going to say that. Like, I, I just don't think that way, Charlie. I'm like, that's fine. As long as you understand what's being said and you can go with that. And I think in this case, it's something similar. Like, this is my language. You don't have to say, like, if you believe in, um, you know, um, if you're, from Islam, you don't have to say spirit and chakra and universe and, and like you can say Allah and prayer and whatever you want to say on that side. But I also don't have to say those things back to you in that way, as long as we can agree. Um, in many ways, I think it's kind of like you've probably um, seen this from the Taoist tradition, but it's kind of like the finger pointing at the moon. And a lot of times when we get wrapped around language, this is my perspective. I, I completely appreciate that other people have different perspectives on this one. But, you know, a lot of times we get so wrapped around the finger and forget what it's pointing at. Right. And so, you know, the finger might be universe or spirit or chakras or God or Allah or um, whatever it might be. Right. 
we can let that go. What's the moon we're talking about here? Like, what are we really getting at? And so that's what I would say about that is just set up the ground rules that like, you can't, um, this is not a conversion practice. Like we're not coming to be evangelical and missionary. I'm not trying to convert you to my belief. Right. I'm also not trying to impose my belief structure onto you. Right. What we're trying to do is create these spaces so that we can um, have this quiet, reflective, introspective, powerful time in whatever traditions we know. Um, and if I say something about the third and fourth chakra and it unlocks something for you, a different way of thinking about it, right? What's going on? And that jazzes you up. That's great, right? If you say like, you know, I appreciate that, but that's not really like, that doesn't make any sense to me. That's great too, right? Um, but it's not, we don't spend the next 15 minutes arguing about whether there are chakras or not chakras or whether there are, you know, um, third degree angels or not third degree angels. And I know I'm, I'm making extreme examples here, but it's it's in the middle where we get sort of messed up, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, and I think what happens is people dodge having conversations where they have the opportunity to get to know each other in the ways that are the most meaningful. Um, And it makes me think too of, you know, when we are focusing on a shared either problem that we're trying to solve or a shared goal of, you know, again, that we're trying to solve and it, it becomes a question of how do we really know each other and, bring our best thinking and our highest selves to this shared problem. Um, I think that that is really helpful as opposed to like, I I think that some of this um, can get wonky when it's, there's not a a shared goal, even in like, why are we having this conversation? Is it about trying to know you better? You know, me better fix something that we both have an interest in fixing. Like, um, But I do, I've seen this even, you know, with the undergrads that I teach, um, you know, one of the assignments I've given in Compassion in the World Religions course that I've taught at Stanford was to ask them to each go to a prayer service from a tradition that's not their own, that they'd not engaged with. And it was, and then come back and talk about their experience. So to have the experience of being an outsider, but trying to understand, and they had to do an interview of someone who was, you know, a practicing member of that religious uh, tradition and ask them a set of questions to really try to climb the empathy wall and understand. Um, But experiences like that aren't part of education today. They don't happen for our younger kids. They don't happen in undergrad. They don't happen in grad school. So then we're unprepared by the time we're in professional life. Um, And even if we want to know more about someone who we work with who comes from a very different background, we're so, it can be so daunting to know how to ask a question without being insulting. And so we don't necessarily ask. I hear a lot of people talk about that. I want to know more. I just don't know how to ask. I don't know how to start that conversation. And I'm afraid I'll offend them. Do you see that? Yeah, I see that a lot. I see that about this particular topic. I see that about talking, you know, talking about race and, you know, all sorts of identity value, all sorts of identity injustice and things like that. And it's always this, I'm curious but I don't know how to start the conversation. So I'm not going to start the conversation um, because, you know, I don't want to offend someone, 
But then because I don't know what's going on, I end up either doing things that offend them um, or I end up not supporting them in the way that I actually think that I actually feel about them. And so we end up in these sort of um, silos of ourselves, you know, um, where um, there's no there's no bridge. And, you know, I I feel fortunate in that sense because I remember, you know, going back to the army and things like I, I don't know the more I get away from it. I was talking to you a little bit about this earlier, but the more I get away from it, the more I realize how many cool parts of it there were. But like when you went to a new culture, like if you were deployed, like they would sit down and say, here are some of the things about this culture you need to know about. Right. And sometimes it was, you know, not great, but it was more, you know, it wasn't just like, Oh, we're going to drop you in the middle of, you know, this completely different culture and expect you perform well. Um, and, you know, do things like, you know, you're sharing a meal with someone and you're eating with your left hand and you're offending the crap out of everybody. And you don't know why, because you're left-handed and that's how you eat. But in that culture, that's the taboo hand when you're at the table. Right. And all of a sudden you've made a mess of things and you have no idea what just happened. And they can't even talk about it because it's just one of those things that's so embedded in their culture, um, that it's just not done. Now that's an example, like you can go with, you know, cross-gender conversations and relationships, you know, across many different societies. But I think, you know, the DOD Department of Defense here had at least a good sense of histories of knowing what happens when you don't do that to say here, like you are going to someone else's culture, right? Um, For you to be successful with your mission there, you need to know X, Y, and Z. But we live in this cultural melting pot here in the United States, right? And so you know, we're not having the conversations that really we are a multicultural society, right? When you show up to work, um, though in our society, um, we have a history of a certain type of way of showing up that's acceptable, right? That's, that's how you do that. But here's how this works in other cultures. That's not on the job training. It's not educational training. It's just sort of stuff that Maybe you got to take the initiative and go talk to other people on that. But like, how do you even start that? How do I walk in? I mean, that's the question that I get a lot of times. How do I walk in to a local mosque and say, hey, I would love to learn more about Islam. And I would love to learn more about how you experience the world. Now, that seems to me to be a super easy question at my point in life, right? But I think a lot of people don't do that. Like that's not something they would think about doing. Um, and that would be incredibly scary. Like what if they're, you know, what's going to happen? And I, I can tell you what's going to happen, but anyways, right. But I think it's having that sort of conversation about this, like, Hey, I want to learn more about this. I'm not coming from a place of judgment. I'm not coming from a place of conversion. I'm not, you know, coming from a place mm-hmm. of anything like that. I just love to understand the world, the way you see it and how, you interact in the world and how the world interacts with you. Um, and let's have a conversation about that. Right. Um, and there will be people that will be incredibly offended by even you saying that. Cause like, Oh, so you just assume because I'm X that, you know, it's different. I'm like, I don't know what to assume, but I don't want to assume mm-hmm. it's the same as mine. Cause I think that's false. I don't know what it is anyways. And so I think that's, um, that's a, Unfortunately, a conversation that our um, ostensibly multicultural society has put on individuals, where I think it's um, something where 
um, I think organizations, especially large organizations, um, could do a better job about that. Yes, it costs time and dollars and money, but how much are you already spending in protection on lawsuits anyways, right? Yeah, I think that's a great a great point. And I, I feel like putting the legwork, because um, I've seen it be really problematic when, you know, and even experience this when I'm in a group and they're like, oh, tell us the whatever perspective on X, the thing that makes me different, or like the woman or the this or the that. It's so different. Um, and in my experience, when we make the effort to be the one to go and and ask the question and be the outsider and try to understand, I've I've never experienced people being anything less than helpful in that. And they might not be, they might redirect me to someone else and be like, oh, you need to talk to this person. Um, but, you know, it's super interesting. It's, it's occurring to me to one of the, um, one of the really interesting um, things I've been doing with work is exploring with one of the biggest oil companies, how to implement mindfulness in the context of improving safety. And we're talking about, you know, the people who are in the leadership in this company look very different than the people we're trying to target with this work in every sense, education, language, race, you name it. And so this has been part of what I've been trying um, to build into our process that we, if I think that it's absolutely right that there's going to be the more intentional we are with our attention, there's going to be impact on safety and good outcomes. But to do that well, you have to speak the language that people are coming to it with. And it may be never using the word mindfulness at all. It may be bringing some of these principles in, in very different, literally language and terms. Um, and I, I think that the only way to really do this effectively is to spend time with people and and try to m learn their language and then test within that, like, you know, how does this read to you? Because me in the Bay Area, it's going to, you know, things the same ideas or concepts are going to read totally differently. Um but I think even in this process of putting in programs that are effective, that aren't just a Band-Aid or so a company can say, hey, I did X, Y, and Z to check the box. And I believe that in this situation, the person spearheading this project is really motivated um, with a lot of, of, of real human care. Um, and, you know, it would be a lot easier if it was plug and play. Like, here's the thing. And you just stick it in whatever setting and everybody picks it up and the, the benefit shows up, but that's not the reality of, of, um, I think how we work <laughs> literally work. Yeah. It's not how we literally work. And, um, most attempts to create a universal plug and play system, um, does so at the cost of like, Overrule, overriding cultural differences, overriding personal differences, so on and so forth. So you can get a universal plug and play system. Um, we know what it's going to look like, right? Um, and so it's imperial. I mean, it can be the argument would be, and I'll say it this way: the argument would be is it's imperialism of another sort, right? Um, in in that sense, right? Um, and you, I, I know it sounds 
perhaps oversimplistic, at a great way to make sure that you're really being culturally relevant and appropriate and things like that is to make sure you hire more people from that culture to run these programs and be managers and things like that. But as long as you have, you know, um, Singaporean, a Singaporean company with an American management system on top of it, you're going to end up, and I'm just using those two countries because that happens, but I mean, that's pretty much the way a lot of things happens around the world. Is it like local people do the work? We'll transplant our manager, our managers over to oversee said work. That's a, that's a recipe. Just, you know, that's a, that's an invitation to disaster in the way that we're talking about. So rather than trying to transplant like American values in that way, how about you bridge the gap, like create these cultures, like you said, like, here's what we're trying to get across. Here's really the goal, right? Here's what we're trying to do. Here's a framework that we have that's culturally relevant and appropriate for our society that gets this done. How might we adapt this so that it's culturally relevant and appropriate for you so that we get a similar process, right? Um, and it might not happen on the same timetable because we don't realize, um, we don't realize to what degree in our own society that there are just common frameworks. Like um, I used to teach philosophy and ethics and things like that. And most people don't realize how much Platonic and Aristotelian thinking frame their way of seeing the world. Right. It goes super, super deep. Right. Cause we've just been building on that foundation over and over again. You go to a country that does not have Aristotle and Plato at its roots there's a whole lot of just conversations you don't even know to have. Right. And there's a whole lot of like, I, I, I kind of think of it as like cultural operating system, right? There's a whole lot about this operating system that works because of these foundations. You go into another culture, it's a different operating system in a lot of ways. And I'm not saying it's better or it's worse or it's, you know, we're still human, but the way in which that operating system parses language and parses his program, it's going to be different and it's not going to have the same hookup, right? And so that's where you have to have people from that culture that are saying, okay, here's how we translate this or gasp. Here might be a better way to explain this, right? That's more include that that's better for all of the world. That's not just coming from this frame that surprisingly that can happen too. I'm being sarcastic, but I mean, that's, a, that's what we don't think about a lot of times, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I love that it, it's really in some ways, the only way to surface our strongest assumptions is to like get out of the place where the assumptions universally apply. It's, it's, otherwise we don't see it. We're all swimming in the same water. Um, yeah. I, I think that, and it's interesting that corporations are using the language of culture increasingly now. Um, and you know, bringing forward an intentional culture and a culture that's productive. Um, but I also find myself asking like productive for who and, you know, what, if we're setting up conditions that are conducive to work and well-being, we also, that's not going to look the same for everybody and who's asking the question and designing around which preferences. Um, I think that it's it, it'll be really interesting to see how this unpacks, you know, all these open office spaces then starting to get converted back into little cubicles and it opens again. I mean, it's just like a very literal example of, you know, what are the conditions physically that help us to do the work we're trying to do? Well, it's not necessarily so straightforward. 
Yeah. So that's the that's that's why I stay in the game, Leah, because we <laughs> got into this and I was like, what are the conditions that enable us individually and as a society to thrive? Right. That's why it's called productive flourishing. Right. And it's a complicated question. It seems easy. It's a complicated sort of, you know, complex scenario. And you get to exactly to your point where, you know, when people start thinking about design, a, a question I've learned to ask is, what are we optimizing for? Right. There are a lot of things we can do, but what is this design? What is this structure? What is this system optimized for? And let's start from that. And did we pick the right thing? For instance, I was talking to someone yesterday. It's a, it's a micro, micro example, but they're thinking about some system switches. And it's like, okay, so you can optimize for having everything in one place. Or you can optimize for having tools that are best in class alone, but you have, they're not all in the same place. But it doesn't seem like we can do both at the same time. So which one, which one of those values take precedent? And once we decide that, we might just have to every time, every time like the other sort of cultural thing pops up or the other value thing pops up, we're like, oh man, I wish that's like, yeah, I know, but we chose this, right? And I feel the same way. I'm curious about this, right? I feel the same way as about, say, Amazon's work culture, which we know it's a high-performance, high-stress environment. Um, it can be brutal for folks. But at this point, I might get in a lot of trouble about this, but I'm like, we know that going into it, right? You know when you apply to Amazon that that's the type of culture it is. So to get inside the culture and then complain about the culture is inconsistent to me. That would be like going to the Navy SEALs or the Army Rangers and being like, yeah, I want to be a part of this elite, high-performance, tough unit. And then you get in there and it's high-performance and tough. And you're like, this is way too hard. This is this is inhumane. Like something's wrong with this. Like, you kind of knew that before you joined, right? It's the way we roll. And so if that's not the type of culture you want to work at, don't work there, right? Um, I'm not saying Amazon shouldn't mm -hmm. improve some of its practices, right? I think it's a sort of a systems thing. It's the organization and the individual. But I think it's to the point to where we as or organization leaders can say, what are we optimizing this culture for? And let's be honest about that. And then I think individuals can say, what do I want to optimize my career around? And when you find that there's not a fit, I don't know. I mean, the simplest option is not to work there when you have the option. Like if that's the only option in town and the coal mine is shutting down, and you have to work at the coal mine or, you know, not. It's a different sort of scenario. But I think that's a, a less relevant scenario for an, increasing, an increasingly larger amount of people. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's right with the options of of being able to work remotely and you know, I've I've definitely heard people talk about when culture is functioning well, it should be a sorting mechanism that it, people should understand what the culture of this organization is well enough before they come in to select in or opt out. And I think it's a really interesting point and I, I, I had never heard anybody juxtapose it how you just did with like, you know, you don't get into the seals and say, this is hard. Um, I think that there's a lot to be said for that in having the clarity about who we are, like what our purpose is and what our environment fit is. Cause like, I know for me, that's been a big learning curve. And I see that in a lot of my MBA students, that they'll start out in environment in one environment, maybe finance, and they'll work a hundred hours a week in that, or they'll be in a startup. And 
it'll either be they'll decide that's not the right environment or for the next phase of their life when they want to have, you know, families, that's not where they want to be. But part of it is just is a lot of um, trial and error. And I also really appreciate your point that it is a privileged position, um, you know, if we're in a situation where we can make these choices. But I feel like I, that I'm like such a broken record. And whenever undergrads come to talk to me about what do I want to do? What do they want to do for their career and this and that and the other. And I'm always like, get in some, I don't care if it's unpaid internship, get somewhere near it. And I don't care if you are the lowest person and, and you feel like you deserve a better role, like understand in your bones what the environment looks like. Cause that's the only way that I know to really learn, like, what am I about? Where do I fit? It's by trial and error and, you know, all that sort of, um, experience, which we don't get necessarily in the classroom. And, um, I think it goes a long way to saying where, what are the environments and values I want to select for and move towards and what matters to me. Yeah, exactly. And if you're broken record about that, then I'm a part of your band because it's the same thing. <laughs> it's the same thing. You know, it's the same thing I say, you know, I'm also the chair of the Wayfinding Academy. And it's the same thing that we say there is just like, don't spend four or eight or 10 years going for a career option that you haven't actually shown up to like experience. Like, it's all fun to think you want to be a vet until you have to like, do what vets do and see, see what that life is and cut into animals and deal with this animal that's just crapped all over itself because it's sick. And then you got to tend to it. Like that's the reality of being a vet. It's not the total reality, but if like, that's not something you want to show up to work or that you're willing to show up to work to deal with frequently enough, maybe that's not the career path for you, you know? Um, and I also think it's um, the other side is like, before you rule out, like a trade. I know I got to put a trade because in the American society, that's how we are about education. It's like, you can go and you can get these great jobs or you can work in a trade BS. Right. Um, before you reel them out, like maybe try welding for a little bit, right. Maybe try to build something with your hands and see, you know, what that's like, or maybe plumbing is your jam. Like, but that's maybe another conversation, experiential learning. Here's what I'll say. Experiential, experiential learning is the best learning. It's also the cheapest learning, Right. Um, you don't have to go into debt for it. Um, you don't have to, in a lot of ways, you don't have to have a degree to do it. Um, you just got to have a little gumption and courage to, to, and for lack of a better word, humility to show up and be like, I'll, I'll push the mail cart. Right. Um, I'll do these jobs that aren't glamorous, but it gives me a reality of what's going on and I can build up from there. So I'm with you on it. 100% that um, I am um, going to make a long story very, very short on this one. If you're a student and you're listening to this and you're not incorporating experiential learning, like getting into the career professions that you're talking about, please stop taking two or three extra classes a semester to get ahead and take that same amount of time and in turn, volunteer, get involved in the career path that you actually want to do. It's going to be a way better use of your time and money, right? Um, and if you're a parent, please, please encourage your, your your people to do that because I think going forward, I don't know. This is a broad conversation, but we've had a broad conversation. I think going forward, we're the the degree is going to mean less and less. 
Um, and we're going to start optimizing in our interviewing because we're getting better. The business is getting better about interviewing and it's getting better about integration. I think we're going to start optimizing for people who have more character based traits than knowledge based competencies. So if you can show up and you've got gumption and you're helpful, um, and you have the courage to, um, take on a project that's a little bit above you, if you have the um, proactivity to start asking around and, and taking work from other people, you are going to get ahead regardless of what you know. Right. But if you just come in and you're like, well, I know this, like, therefore I should be able to get paid X, Y, and Z. You're going to, we're not going to optimize for that anymore. That's me. I know long rant there. Well, I think the data supports what you're saying. I mean, it's interesting that I've just been doing work on, you know, looking into research for hiring managers and what are the bottlenecks in, in, with, which happen in people's careers. And it's not about the hard skills. It's about the interpersonal, emotional intelligence, social intelligence. And when you ask hiring managers for companies, they can't find the people who have the people skills and that's what they most are looking for. Or if you interview people a few years out of business school, you know, they get the first job, but the differentiator between having the career trajectory they're looking for, I think is a combination of this sense of purpose and clarity and personal purpose. And these, these, for lack of better words, soft skills. Um, so I, I think you're spot on in that one. Yeah. I don't think people are getting outworked. I think they're getting outhearted. Um, and that's just what we're going to continue to, to, to optimize for. Yeah. I love that expression outhearted. That's great. Um, so we've, we've touched on a lot of few things as it relates to mindfulness and culture and, you know, all sorts of different things, really wonderful jam, but, you know, sort of wrapping things up as the guest, you get to leave us with an invitation or a challenge. Right, an invitation or a challenge, whichever resonates more with you. So based upon what we've talked about today, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? So my challenge would be go to someone in your life, your school, your workplace, who comes from a background different than your own and ask them questions about it. Learn, make the choice to... Um, Tell them you want to learn more and don't let fear of that conversation and being awkward or saying the wrong thing stop you. That's my challenge. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today, Leah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Okay, listeners. So you heard it from Leah. Between now and next week, go out in your community somewhere and find someone who just comes from a different background than you and ask them about their experiences and about how they get on in the world and see what you learn. Um, I know it takes a little bit of courage, but it's well worth the ask. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, We'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. 